what a computer is to me is it's the most remarkable tool that we've ever come up with. And it's the equivalent of a bicycle for our minds. That is the voice of Steve Jobs. And if I were to ask you, what is the best book ever written about Apple? You might answer the Walter Isaacson book entitled Steve Jobs. But is it complete? I have a different title, which focuses on the years before the creation of Apple through 1984, which is the best year ever of Apple II sales in terms of units, more than one million. The title of the book is Return to the Little Kingdom. And by the way, my new favorite podcast is Business Books and Co. The moderator of that binge-worthy show is David Kopeck. And he knows Apple history inside and out. And David is going to help us with a deep dive into this very rich history of Apple. And I'm betting you'll hear a few stories you have never heard before. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Would you be shocked if I said I like business books that make me think, titles that will cause me to do additional research? Occasionally, I will go searching for other podcasts with a focus on business books. And a few weeks ago, I found one. It's called Business Books and Co. And I listened to one episode, then another, another. And about three weeks later, I had gone through their entire catalog. Now, they are on a brief hiatus, but I wanted more. Well, I produce a podcast, so let's just have the moderator on. So David Kopech agreed to do an interview about his show, but he also wanted to do a separate conversation about a favorite book. And that's where we pick up on this conversation. David, big, big, big question. Why this book? So we let you pick the book. Why did you pick The Return to the Little Kingdom? Well, Mark, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Really an honor, I want to say right up front. So I've read a lot of books about Apple and Steve Jobs. It's kind of a hobby of mine. I think of myself as like an amateur Apple historian. I think this is the best foundational book on the early days of Apple. It helps you understand the backgrounds of the co-founders. It helps you understand the technical innovations in the Apple I and the Apple II. And it also helps you understand the business arc of that early company. How did they go from two guys in a garage to one of the fastest growing companies in American history? And I'm curious, you asked me this before we hit record. I had mentioned that I listened years ago to the Walter Isaacson book called Steve Jobs. I'm just curious, David, what's the difference between that book and Return to the Little Kingdom? The most obvious difference is Return to the Little Kingdom ends in 1984. Uh, so the author is writing this book with some really quite exclusive access in 1982 and 1983 to meetings internal to Apple, and then writing the book right as the Macintosh is launching in 84. Of course, the Isaacson book covers the entire arc of Steve Jobs' life. A lot of people feel the Isaacson book didn't get enough into the weeds of both his life and also some of the technical achievements at Apple. I think this book really does. 
for that early period for for you know 1976 to 1984 the Isaacson book personally I enjoyed and I think I think it's a it's a good baseline for getting into this area if you want to learn more about Steve Jobs it's a good starting point it's the only authorized biography it tells the overall story competently but when you want to dive a little bit deeper into specific time periods there are different Apple books that are better for different time periods for the early history of the company. I think this is absolutely the best one. That's fascinating. And that helps with the delineation. One thing that's interesting, I think the author, he either published this in 83 or 84. I think it may be 83. If you don't mind, I'm just going to check a quick timeline. It was... It was 1984 that he publishes. Here's why this is significant, I think. Push back if you want. That was the most, that was the biggest year of sales they had ever had, 1.1 million. Now, in billion. Or, yes, yes. Uh, this, by the way, this is in units, units. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay, million. No, no yeah. actually, you're right. They hit the 1 billion mark, almost, by the way, almost 2 billion mark uh, in valuation. But in units, the, the Apple II, they sold the most, 1.1 million. It looks like 1983 and or 1984, rather. The next year, they still hit a million. But every year after that, they started dropping downward. So that just right. provides a little context of when this book was published uh, sometime in 84. So, yeah, he, he had access to all of these individuals. And, and just I, I was amazed because I like to read the front matter and the back matter of a book and just the number of employees that he talked to. So this unrestricted access, I am curious, and I know you can't answer the question. I'm curious if the author and Steve Jobs were ever buddies after this book uh, came out, but I feel like this is a very factual book, right? Right. And they had kind of a falling out, Steve Jobs and the author, and that's covered in the preface to the book, right? They we're going to have Steve Jobs be the man of the year. Right. And I believe this is for 83. Yes. And he's writing the book with all this access that Steve has granted him to internal to Apple. But there's this controversial story coming out about Steve having a daughter out of wedlock and then having to be basically sued in order to take financial responsibility for that daughter. And Mike Moritz's magazine is publishing that story and also now taking back, making him man of the year. And as a result, Steve kind of shut him out. So he had to go finish after having all this access, it was kind of pulled out from under him. And I, you know, I'm curious if personally they they healed those wounds later on, because of course the author went on to be a very well-known venture capitalist exactly. in Silicon Valley. And so they were still in the same circles uh, for the rest of Steve Jobs' life. I hope he did. Well, let me say something real quickly before we move on, because I'm I'm a little bit nervous because I love business books and co. I have now, you talk about binge listening. It took me about three weeks, but I'm now through every one, every episode. I'm now waiting for season number four, hint, hint, hint. And I was telling you before we hit record, I think you are an outstanding analyst of books. And you, by the way, you're not just, I mean, by the way, theory is critical. Uh, no great ideas come without theory, but 
you're not just reading these for theory, but application as well. So you are such a balanced, uh, your balanced approach to analyzing these books. So I'm a little bit nervous as we start going through this because I feel like I'm going to be more shallow than you are. So if you don't mind, I'm going to do my best. So be easy on the follow-up questions on me, David, because you're going to have better answers than, than I am. So first impressions, first impressions. You probably reread the book in preparation for this. You set the book down. You think about it. What are the first impressions or the first things you think about on this book? I mean, this is an incredible story of entrepreneurship. These are the two Steves, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, came out of nowhere to found Apple Computer. Um, one of them was basically a hippie who had recently come back from a spiritual journey to India. And the other one is kind of a line engineer keeping his head down and doing his work at Hewlett Packard. That's Wozniak's the one working at Hewlett Packard. And they had done some prior business ventures together, and maybe we'll get into those a little bit later. And so they knew each other well. They knew electronics well, especially Wozniak. But they had no history of doing a, a, you know, a, something that was really professional. And the right people were surrounded. Uh, they were surrounded by the right people at exactly the right time to make this happen. But you needed the right combination of skills in that early group. And it wasn't just that, you know, Wozniak was the technical genius and then these business folks had come in and um, helped him take it to the next level. No, I think the the passion and the entrepreneurial drive of Jobs really comes through in this book. Um, he's not just, sometimes he gets uh, this reputation for not understanding the technology. There's a lot of uh, false myths about that out there. And sometimes he also, you even see this on some Wikipedia articles. It's kind of like, what did he really contribute to the Apple II? What did he really contribute to early Apple? He was the one that wouldn't say no on the phone. He was the one who was uh, meeting everybody that he could to make it happen. Um, and I think that entrepreneurial drive is the thing that is the the thread throughout Return to the Little Kingdom. Can I interject real quickly regarding his his technical acumen, Steve Jobs? Do you remember it was Bill Fernandez who first introduces Steve Jobs to Waz? And I highlighted it. I found it hilarious. I don't know if it was meant to be hilarious. But Jobs says something to the effect, I paraphrase, oh, I finally met someone who knows uh, about computers or technology than I do. So I thought, I think Jobs is pretty, he, he can hold his own. The, the guy was sharp. So I don't get that myth because we, we never see that in this book, do we? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. 
It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. No, not at all. And, you know, he was, he says himself, there's a quote of jobs in the book, you know, I'm not an engineer. Waz was the engineer, right? Clearly that's the case, of course, but he understood what was going on. He had been working at Atari for a couple of years as um, an electronics engineer. He had been studying electronics himself since he was 12 years old. Was he a technical genius like Steve Wozniak? Absolutely not. Did he do the design of the Apple one and the Apple two? No, that was Wozniak. But did he understand everything that was going on and therefore be able to be the entrepreneur that was adding that extra layer on top? Yes. Um, I think he understood everything. And I think if you watch early videos of him from uh, when he was at Next or even some early videos when he returned to Apple, it's very clear throughout his career, he understood everything about the technology. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that he was a programmer. That doesn't mean he was a hardware engineer but he understood the concepts and he was able to use those concepts effectively in his visions. Um, and I think another thing that's important to know is that he even wrote articles and, and this is not something in the book. This is just side knowledge, but he wrote technical articles about the Apple II in some early Apple publications. You couldn't do that if you didn't really understand you know, the technology at an intimate level. This is purely opinion. And I would even like your input on this. I think one of his gifts this ability, this this ability of synthesis, taking an idea here, an idea here, an idea here. Uh, there's a great video. We'll have this in the show notes. And I was anxious to see would this be in the book, and it was. It's an article from the Scientific American where it talks about who who are the most efficient getting from point A to point B. I think the the condor does that sound right? Uh, uh, yeah. Most efficient uh, man person, people, very inefficient. Wait a minute, you put them on a bicycle. Now they're more efficient than the condor. And Jobs linked that to, wait a minute, the computer, that's the bicycle of the mind. And I just thought, and that's one small example. I may be pulling too much out of it, but I just thought he was able to, he synthesis was a gift for him, just taking these ideas from outside disciplines. That was not Waz's, Waz's gift. He could make things work with few materials. Was you probably have read, I, I know, just listen to the podcast. I know you've watched, listened to a lot of his interviews. Uh, by the way, he's a fascinating interview. He's very open, very gracious uh, with his time. He doesn't give you the short answer. It's it's a good, complete answer. But I know there's a complete surprise to you, David. This guy was a geek. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I mean, he was a geek and he was, you know, borderline genius level at electronics. And he was somebody who was always interested in using the least amount of components to create any of his inventions. And in fact, he was so talented at this that he worked with Jobs on the first version of the game Breakout for Atari. And there's an interesting anecdote in the book about this that we can get into. But he used so few parts to rewire Breakout that the engineers who worked at Atari couldn't figure out how he had done it, and therefore they couldn't use his design in production. But being able to do that was very important on the Apple II 
because it enabled him to bring the cost of the machine down. Having fewer components increases reliability, of course, as well. And there were some technical innovations that were only possible by finding clever ways to use fewer parts, including color on the Apple II, which was one of the Apple II's most important features that differentiated it from the other personal computers of the time. And the Apple II, like you mentioned, was really the computer that was driving Apple for about the first 10 years of the company's existence. I was that, That's neat that you brought that up. Do, do you mind if I read you a quick quote uh, from the book? Sure. I don't have the page yeah. number, but it says, at a young age, Waz began to concentrate on making parts perform as many functions as possible. I started moving toward higher levels of integration and henceforth, he focused on the twin objectives of combining, and this is where I'm replicating what you just said, as few chips as possible into the smallest amount of space. I will say this, they had good tailwinds because chips started getting smaller. I'm, now I'm getting into your level of expertise, but chips, transistors started getting smaller and smaller. So they were living at the right time to be able to work with these constraints. But again, that is a great insight. And that's exactly what I picked up about Waz. One other thing about Waz, about his geekness, uh, was it the homebrew club that he was a part of? So it was a, a computer club. I think when it got started, no people, then it grew to 300 people within eight months. Again, I have an underline. They're my life. <laughs> So you take a, right, this right, is right. my life. And it's like, again, he just ate and breathed uh, technology, putting stuff together. So I guess I did not realize how techy uh, he was. Um, there were some eccentricities that we learned about later in the book, and I'll bring one of them up uh, a little bit later. But I'd like to contrast that quote um, that, that you brought up about Wozniak with a quote from Jobs in the book. So Wozniak, you know, he says his whole life is the homebrew computer right. club, right? There's a quote from Jobs in an internal meeting about the Macintosh saying, I've never had more fun in my life than I'm having right now leading the Macintosh team. And that's really the two passions that you need to make Apple. You need the guy who wants nothing more than to talk about chips. And you need the guy who wants nothing more than to talk about the vision of what the personal computer can be. You need those two ingredients together to go from just making a run-of-the-mill, another personal computer company. And by the way, there were many at this time. And I think that's another important point from the book, right? If it hadn't been Apple, there would have been another company. In fact, there were um, tens of companies getting into the personal computer market when Apple started. Apple was not the first. And it might not have even been technically the best from a technical standpoint. It was the combination of factors from marketing to design to technical that came together to make the Apple II stand out. One last comment, and I don't think you hit this, David, head on, but you hit the fringes of it. One other observation about jobs. By the way, if I could have any person, if I could have my number one pick, who to interview from Silicon Valley, I don't think you would ever guess. You might guess in 100 years. I don't think you'd guess in a year. If I could interview one person, it would be Steve Blank. He is my hero. 
He is, I, I love anything. He, I love hearing him talk, by the way. He just, I, I, it's like, I trust this guy. But the, the Four Epiphanies is probably the best book ever written uh, on customer development. I still think it stood this test of time. The reason I bring up Steve Blank is because of this quote I want to read about Steve Jobs. And you, by the way, you know this. I think I've heard you even talk about this before. Jobs had little interest in laborious research. There is nothing he believed in more deeply than his intuition and his sense and touch for where the technology and markets would meet in lay person's terms from Monroe County, Missouri, Hicksville of the breadbasket. That's basically saying he used his hunch, his intuition. He did not use a lot of data. I don't know how him and Steve Blank would get along in terms of, you know, MVP and testing. And so I just think you don't have to be a certain way. Now there was luck and there's good luck and bad luck because we see what happens after Apple two things went downward for quite a while, but I'm still impressed. And again, a breath of fresh air. You've got this, leader, this innovator who it's, this is what I think is going to happen. Thoughts. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think that you can compare jobs a lot to Edison. Good point. Edison had a lot of great technical ideas himself. So that's different from jobs, but in terms of picking the next product and in terms of um, how he guided the company, a lot of it was intuition. And that's why sometimes I think people think about Steve Jobs as the Edison of our time. Uh, there's success after success after success, innovation after innovation after innovation. And a lot of those are coming, of course, from the team below. And how do you pick which ones are the ones to really drive? How do you pick which ones are the ones that go together well? That actually requires something that's subtle and that you can't easily teach somebody, which I think is taste. And you know, even Bill Gates has said this before about Steve Jobs. He he asked him what would be the, there was a joint interview between the two of them at the All Things D conference in 2007, and they asked uh, it was Walt Mossberg I think asked each of them what trait would you have of the other person if you could have any trait, and Bill Gates said I would have his taste, and you know it's funny because Steve had actually said I think this was in an internal document at Apple that leaked before that or maybe it was an interview that he, he did that. He thought Microsoft had terrible taste. And I wonder if Bill Gates was actually thinking of that when he said that about jobs. Um, and, you know, th- that's a opinion piece, right? Does Microsoft have terrible taste? And we're talking about the 1990s or not. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Taste is not just about what something looks like. Taste is not just about um, how something feels. It's about picking the right avenues to go down that are going to appeal um, to to a mass audience, right? And I think Jobs had incredible intuition, and a lot of that came from having great taste. Fascinating. When I started this segment, David, I was asking, the, the original question was uh, first impressions. You kind of took my, my third uh, first impression, my third one, but I want to go ahead and bring it up a little bit. And just if you want to add anything to it, I have nothing. I, I, I'm I'm not an academic. 
just just look and listen to him. He can tell that real quickly. You don't have to nod, David. <laughs> just joking. Um, <laughs> I don't have anything to prove this, but I'm a big believer in the leadership triangle. And no, I did not learn this from Star Trek, uh, Spock, uh, Kirk, and McCoy. I did not learn it there, but just through observation from other businesses I worked with over the the years, and even my years in public uh, accounting, it seems like there's always this three people, three three people. I think I've mentioned this even before in in another episode. It's it's, it's always going to be the CEO. Sometimes it's going to be the CTO, maybe an operations person. Sometimes it may be the financial executive who's part of that threesome. But we learned that here, and, and I took note of this, um, and we're going to mention a name that I don't know if anyone has ever remembered. I don't remember, David, if this guy's in the movie, he probably is. So between the startup or pre-startup and the Apple II, you have to have both Steves. It doesn't work without those two. Now, post-Apple II, yes, but from pre-startup to Apple II, you have to have the two seats, and there's a third guy. And that third guy, and again, th- to me, this is critical, or th- I don't think this thing works, uh, is his name Markula? Did I say it? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. every they needed money to grow. They needed, they needed this money. Just They needed traction. Everybody said no. No, no. Finally, there's this guy named uh, Mike Markula who says, I'm in. And I think, you I don't remember the number, a quarter of a million dollars. I think he even took out a mortgage on his home. And by the way, he was one of the good guys. He ended up hiring Mike Scott, I think their first uh, CEO. And by the way, I did not like Mike. I would not want to work. I think I <laughs> might have liked Jobs better than Mike Scott. I'd be curious to know how Mike and Jobs got along at times. We got some sense of that. But Mike Markula, if there's no Mike Markula, now I'm not saying there wouldn't be someone, another Mike in his place, but that threesome was absolutely critical. So that that triangle leadership is almost apparent in almost every startup we see. And I just want to give a, a big high five to, again, Mike Markula for saying, there's something here, and I really like these guys. Do you get the same sense with Mike as well? Not only that, but he was also the older voice yes. of reason. Good point. On to- uh, he and he wasn't that much older. He was uh, younger than me. He was in his early 30s, and he had worked at Intel already, and he had that corporate experience coming into it. And another thing was he was just as passionate about yes. Apple as the two yes. Steves were. In fact, he stayed with Apple for decades after Steve Jobs was gone. And then, you know, Steve Jobs came back, of course, but he was very involved. He was, he was on the board of Apple for, you know, for the longest time. Uh, so yes, I, I absolutely agree with you that he doesn't get his due in a lot of the histories. And I think that's because he, you know, he wasn't literally one of the co-founders because he wasn't there from day one. He was there a few months later. Is that really that big a difference? I don't know. We could debate that. But he deserves more of a do. I think Mike Scott was kind of in there providing yes. order. Um, he came in and he was a little abrasive. I would say almost a little bit obnoxious. He was also really passionate about the mission. But um, his abrasiveness ultimately got the better of him. And when the company went from being a startup to being 
um, you know, a billion dollar corporation, the abrasiveness no longer right. worked. Um, but I, I think both of the mics provided kind of that that seasoned older leadership that was really needed when the two Steves weren't mature enough to be doing it on and their own. Again, I just wanted to accentuate this part of the book because this is the part of the startup world that cannot be missed. I know there's a big emphasis on innovation, but that or use the word order more than once and it is critical or it's just going to be chaos. They still had chaos. It was just organized, more organized, uh, I think. Mark, I wanted to ask you a question, actually. Um, I'm wondering what company the early days of Apple most resembles to you, either that you've worked with yourself or that is just something that came up within the last 20 years. Because, you know, Apple is already almost uh, hard to believe, but a 50-year-old company. And so what do these early days most resemble to you that we read about in Return to the Little Kingdom of companies from the last 20 years? Uh, I'm pausing. I'm trying to decide, do I want to pick someone that I've worked with or uh, other businesses that I've have read about? <sighs> it's, I'm, I'm stalling and trying to find an example that's so similar because uh, in a way, you could say they did not experience a lot of resistance in the early going. All they needed was some money, and and they needed that mic, that first mic. Um, things are going great through Apple too. So I, I think I'm flunking. I, I think I'm flunking the essay test, David. Okay, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> we can come back uh, to I'm, it. I'm trying to think of who could I say that I work with and it's like, uh, but I'd be divulging. Uh, there'd be some confidentiality issues. There's some that I think they'd, they'd get a kick out of me uh, bringing them up. I, I have worked with one uh, business as an online POS system, POS system. Uh, they have over 1000 customers. I was there from day one self-funded. And by the way, software project number one for a different industry, they canned it. So we started all over again and we hired a couple of people out of uh, Carfax, which is kind of famous. It was founded in Columbia, uh, Missouri. So we built the app. Uh, now they have over 1000 customers. So I was there from day one and worked with them for about the first six years. And we just have to kept putting money into it, money into it. And we finally got traction. And so that, that threesome that I mentioned, that triangle, uh, that was there. Uh, in the early going, I just know it's, it, there is luck and, but you also have to have a great product at the end of the day as well. So, so again, I feel yeah. like I'm, I'm, I, I still think I flunked that essay uh, question. Uh, timelines real quickly. Let me rattle off some bullet points. Tell me if I missed anything. So these are I'm going to use another term of an author that you have talked about twice on your podcast. Uh, he uses the term inflection points. So I'm going to use the word inflection points. So here's just a few of the inflection points of the two Steves, the homebrew club, uh, their first venture, which is the blue box. And I want you to take that one in a few minutes. Their, their, yeah. their manufacturer, the first circuit boards, uh, number four, oh, Mark Kula being turned down until he said yes to the two Steves. 
management is now hired. By the way, they said they never wanted to start a company. They wanted to start a business. So they delineated between the two. The Apple II is a, is a pinnacle point, inflection point. The mega growth that they went through with Apple II. Then the arrogance starts to set in and becoming a big co, which they didn't want. They wanted to be a business, not a company. And then the decline. Those are kind of my inflection points of this very well-documented written book. Did I miss very much? The the only one I would add to that was the first big order for the company, which came from yeah, the bike shop good one. in California. They ordered 50 computers. They had this was the Apple One, and the Apple One was relatively primitive compared to the Apple II. The Apple One took them six hours to build by hand, and they had 30 days net terms for all the parts for it. And they had also this this purchase order from the bike shop that they had to fulfill within those 30 days. So they there was just the two of them, and then they started. Steve Jobs actually hired his sister, and they hired some of the neighborhood kids who ended up becoming early employees of Apple to work with them. But this was the crunch time. There were other personal computer companies coming onto the scene. There were already personal computer stores. That's what this store was, the bike shop. And this was the make it or break it month. If they didn't fulfill this first order, pay back the part suppliers, right? Um, there was no company. And then the whole thing was just a hobby computer that Wozniak had created, right? But they did. And I think it speaks to when you're doing a startup, sometimes there comes, and I've only done a couple and neither of them were super successful, but I know that there comes these crunch times where you either do the hard work or you don't. And that was this critical crunch time where they worked all night testing the boards, making sure everything was perfect. So those first products that went out the door uh, were actually something that would sell at the bike shop. And if you have no Apple One, you have no Apple Two. That, by the way, that is a great, great story. No, I'm not going to say I left it out on purpose so I could hear you talking about it. No, that is a great story. <laughs> I have two questions for you, David. I mentioned the blue box. So number one, can you explain the blue box story and the other Don Draper? And number two, if you can remember it, why did the author feel like he needed to add this story about the blue box? So two questions. Yeah, absolutely. And this will be kind of long, so I apologize ahead of time. But I'm going to take young listeners back to a time before we had mobile phones. I'm old enough that I was growing up, there were still pay phones and there were still uh, long distance calls on your home phone. And there was actually a time even before I was born where AT&T was a complete monopoly. Um, it was basically a government sponsored in some ways monopoly on phone service within the United States. And a lot of people resented that. Um, they resented the control that AT&T had over communications in the United States. Part of the hacker culture and the hacker ethos has always been a response to authority, um, trying to kind of poke at authority and say, hey, we're the rebels and we're going to try to take back some of that power. And of course, communications is power. And I think that was a lot of the inspiration for the early hackers, both working in phones, which was called being a phone freak. It's just the terminology. Um, and also working with early computers, too. It was a way of taking back power. Um, so anyway, so AT&T used a sophisticated system of switches and computers later on to control the phone network. It turns out that something they used very specifically were particular tones, um, particular uh, frequencies of sound 
to say, hey, a call is starting or, hey, connect to this other part of the country. And this was discovered by some of these phone freaks that certain tones would actually lead to initiating a call. And you could actually go and produce these tones to make free phone calls. You could go to a payphone and put just the right frequencies into a um, sound producing machine. And you'd be able to then initiate a call and even um, do things across the phone network because these tones controlled the network. And one of the innovators in this area was a guy known as Captain Crunch. And the reason he was called Captain Crunch is he had discovered that one of the tones was actually created by a toy, a whistle that came in Captain Crunch cereal. And his his last name was Draper. And uh, he was a friend of Wozniak and Jobs. And Wozniak and Jobs took it to the next level. Wozniak created a electronic device that would produce these tones. And so you could actually buy one of these little electronic boxes. It was called a blue box. And you could press some buttons on it and basically make a free phone call. You held it up to the receiver and uh, you press the right sequence of buttons. The right tones would be produced. And because he did it um, using digital electronics, it was very precise. And so now you had this super um, precise way of making free phone calls that would work every time. It was illegal, of course, right? Of course it is. You're stealing basically from the phone company, from AT&T. And the police were after people doing this because they weren't the only ones doing this. And this was one of their first businesses. I think it's important to mention that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak had actually done three kind of business ventures before they started Apple. The One of them was these blue boxes, basically making them. Wozniak did most of the manufacturing. I think Jobs helped a little bit with the manufacturing, but Jobs was more of the less shy one doing some of the sales, going around and, and being selling them. I think they were selling them, they said, for $100. It was either $50 or $100, which with inflation was a lot more back then, right? Um, but people who wanted to make free phone calls were buying them and people who weren't too afraid of the law, but people were getting arrested for buying them. So this was kind of a risky business. And that was one of them. I just want to mention the other two business ventures. Um, they also worked together, and I mentioned this earlier, on a special project for Atari. And there's a whole story with that where uh, that's not covered in the book, where Steve Jobs actually received a lot more money for the project than he told Wozniak. And that, of course, when Wozniak found this out like a decade later, he was kind of upset. Um, and it, it led to a little tear uh-huh. in the relationship uh-huh. later on when he found this out. Um, and then the last one, there was this guy named Alex Kremit. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he had a computer company for timesharing, like building clients to timeshare computers. Before there were personal computers, if you were a small company, you probably couldn't afford a computer. Um, if you, you can afford a mainframe or even a mini computer when mini computers came out. So there was businesses that allowed you to remotely log into a mainframe computer and get a little bit of time, but you had to have a terminal, which was a basically a dumb machine that just displays the output that's coming back from the computer and allows you to type on a keyboard. It's not actually a computer itself. And the two Steves had worked for him kind of producing a terminal, which some of the ideas from that ended up in the Apple one. So they actually had three business ventures together before Apple. So we talked at the beginning of the show about how, you know, this sort of came out of nowhere, but now I'm contrasting it a little bit. There was technical expertise for 10 years that both of them had been working in electronics before they started Apple. And they had also done, they were very good friends, and they had also done multiple business ventures together before they started Apple. 
Sorry for the long answer. I loved answer. it. In fact, I couldn't help it when you were giving the backstory. By the way, I said Don Draper. I was curious if you would pick up on it. Yeah, if we ever do this again, you're going to get used to some of my jokes. Uh, I think it is John <laughs> Draper, and I think he knew that. You're being nice to me. I was thinking of Kevin Mitnick, who's the famous. Yep. Uh, now, I think he came in a different era the, about 10 years later, but he's the most notorious yep. hacker, and he hacked into these telephone companies, and he didn't steal anything. And I, I'm curious, and I, I do think we'll get to talk to uh, Kevin Mitnick, uh, I'm hoping this year, and I'm going to ask him, did you know John Draper? Did that, if you have paths ever cross, but what one. I can answer that question. They did know each other. Um, I read, I think you've probably read Mitnick's book. I think it's mentioned Ghost in the Wires, but it's been a long time ago. Right. Ghost in the Wires. I enjoyed that book. That was a great book. And um, I will just add to this that actually Wozniak knows Mitnick as well. In fact, in a later edition of, Ghost in the Wires, Wozniak writes the preface. So they all knew each other. This was a small Holy community, cow. phone freaks. And these folks who were involved in phone freaking, a lot of them ended up being important in the history of the personal computer. And there, there's a deep relationship between the two communities. And again, it's that hacker ethos fighting back against authority. And Mitnick, that's, I think that's part exactly. of what drove him. He also just enjoyed kind of uh, messing with people. I think that's you another part of it. Could do it. But um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, go, no, no, you well, go ahead. Not to steal any thunder, because again, this is a great backstory. I did, I did want to add, there will be some people who read it. And I just found the way the two Steves tracked down Draper was another story in and of itself, because they had, I think they'd read about this in an article they, I think, was it Los Angeles? They found him through a radio station host. And so it was just, it was an ordeal just to get to meet him and find him. Uh, it, 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 nothing came easy to them. So I, I love that little nugget uh, that the author threw in. So here's the other question. It may seem obvious, David, but why did the author include that story about the blue box? Well, I think it tells you a lot about the two Steves. Um, first of all, I think they are risk takers to a certain extent, both of them. This was a very risky thing to right. do, to be making these right. illegal boxes. I think it also has that same symbiosis we've been talking about at early Apple. You have Wozniak with the um, technical chops, and you have Jobs with the entrepreneurial drive. And that that's that same combination was there in the blue box venture. Um, and I think also it's just kind of entertaining. So I think that's, that's the other. Definitely. And by the way, Draper did go to jail and I think we read later, he went to jail again. And so, uh, yeah, the, the risk was definitely there. Uh, David, before we wrap up, I do want to hit a couple of takeaways real quickly. One name, and I do not remember this from the Isaacson book, but again, it's been a while since I, uh, have listened to that book, but uh, Regis is it Regis McKenna? Yeah. Oh, that was that was great. I loved that part of the story. So he was basically their first, and I'm going to not say advertising guy, their PR guy. He knew how to work the press. And you had asked me a question about can I think of any businesses I've read about uh, or businesses I've worked with similar to Apple. 
Here's one area where I would have to say no. PR was huge. And I cannot even, I can't even use enough superlatives to say how important Regis was. Uh, by the way, Regis worked with uh, Jobs in 2003, uh, 04, pre-iPhone, getting advice, getting input. So that relationship stayed solid for another 15 or more uh, 20 years. So I just want to say a big takeaway is the power of words, uh, the power of media, uh, knowing the press, being their friends, knowing how to work them, knowing how they think, huge takeaway. And, and to me, that is a hard part in business. We're not necessarily taught this in business school. I, again, the, the whole part about Regis was just, I thought, outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that he inspired a lot of Jobs' attention to detail in the area of PR, but it went beyond PR and went to communications about what does the documentation look like? What does the packaging look like? Um, and I think that, that that stayed with Jobs, of course, throughout his career. And, and that that mentorship, that, that mentor relationship was clear in the book. And I think that, that that's actually speaks to something else. Jobs was lucky to have some really great mentors in his early career. I think Marcola was also definitely yes. a mentor. Good, good, again, good point. The, the other thing, and I, I know there's been so much written about businesses like Amazon, uh, Google, uh, obviously Apple. So I'm afraid just bringing this up is like yawn, but the whole concept of unicorns Here's a takeaway. Park, uh, Palo Alto Research, is a corporation that's owned by Xerox. They could have easily have done the Apple II, the lease of the Mac themselves. In fact, Jobs ended up getting some of their people to come over and work at at Apple. Uh, By the way, uh, Waz, even though he took some risks, the blue box, he was on the up and up with HP. Because when he was building the Apple II, he'd go to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Don't you guys want to be doing this? And they'd say, no, no, that's not our thing. So uh, this whole concept of unicorns, I think there is, I've said it before, there can be some luck to it, especially when other people say no. Uh, Yeah, I'd like to say that both HP and Xerox were possibly the two companies most positioned to capitalize on the personal computer revolution, and they almost completely missed it. They did both come out with personal computers, but they neither neither of them had a good market fit. And they this product, I, I can't totally blame HP for missing out on on Wozniak's product. From the description in the book, he was kind of he was not a bad engineer at AP, HP, but he did also they also said he didn't stand out. So you have kind of this this average employee who brings you kind of a, a printed circuit. It wasn't even a printed circuit board yet, like a box of electronics that is a personal computer. But like we talked about, there were many hobbyists building personal computers at that time. Um, It wasn't the most common thing in the world, but there were tens of companies starting. So why this particular average engineer, are you going to buy into what, what he's doing? HP could clearly do it themselves too. Right. So I can't totally blame them for, um, for passing up on it, but what Xerox did incorrectly is irredeemable. Uh, and I, I think if it's okay with you, please, I'd like to take a moment just please. to tell that story. Um, so Xerox at Park had created many of the innovations that we take for granted in personal computers today. 
um, the graphical user interface, Ethernet networking, the um, the mass production of the mouse. The mouse was actually invented 10 years before in the late 60s, but they had had taken it to the next level. Object-oriented programming. All of those things were invented at Xerox Park in the 1970s. And they even came out with a research computer called the Alto that incorporated all of these. But they didn't bring it down in cost enough to make it palatable to the mass market. And they didn't continue to refine it. They did come out with another personal computer that incorporated all of these that they actually did sell more commercially called the Star in 1981. Again, it was way too expensive. I think it was $13,000 when it came out. And it didn't have the right software ecosystem. And it wasn't continued to, uh, it, it wasn't developed further and brought down in price enough to be mass market appealing. Um, but so what happens is Apple has the Apple II. And they realize, of course, we need to come out with something more powerful, maybe something that's more aligned for the business market. They start working in 1979 on the Apple Lisa. Originally, the Lisa was going to be another command line based computer like most computers were at that time. But Apple started having a relationship with Xerox. In fact, Xerox was given the ability to invest in Apple in exchange for Apple getting a preview of some of their cutting edge technologies and a cross licensing agreement. Uh, Steve Jobs and several other key employees at Apple go over to Xerox Park, and they see it all. They see the graphical user interface with the mouse. They see networking, and they see object-oriented programming. They only came back with one of those things, the graphical user interface with the mouse. And they realized this is so obviously right. the future. Let's change the whole direction of the Apple Lisa and make it all centered on the graphical user interface with the mouse. They still came out with a computer that was too overpriced and had some fundamental flaws. When the Lisa comes out in 1983, it's $10,000 as an unreliable disk. Um, it's slow. It has a very limited software development platform. So the software is kind of limited to what but Apple They were created. onto something. But they were onto something. Absolutely. It, you would recognize it today. If you sat down at a Lisa, it... It's similar enough to modern Microsoft Windows, modern Mac OS, you'd be comfortable using it. And this was in 1983. The Macintosh comes out a year later, and it had taken the ideas of the Lisa, compressed them to a form that they could sell at $2,500. And it was successful enough that, of course, we still have the Macintosh today. But the Lisa was a flop. They had tried another computer called the Apple III. It was a flop. And when the Mac first came out, it was doing well, but not well enough to power the whole company. So the Apple II continues to be the bread and butter of this company for 10 years. But Xerox totally missed the boat. Xerox had the option. Xerox could be the Apple of today if they understood to how to take what they have and commercialize it. And I want to add one more anecdote to no, this. I'm sorry on. for going on so long. But when Steve started Next, which was after he left Apple, he was kind of forced out of Apple, really, in 1985. He starts another computer company called Next. And he realizes when I saw all that stuff at Xerox back in the late 70s, I had only captured one of the three things. I captured the graphical user interface with the mouse, but I need to also do the networking and the object-oriented programming. And Next Good one. was really the company that took object-oriented programming and turned it into something that enabled developer productivity Excellent. at the next level. And um, Apple, of course, would end up buying Next in the late 90s, bringing Steve Jobs back to Apple. And the foundational technologies at Next that, again, were inspired by Xerox from the late 70s are what turned into the iPhone's operating system today. So Xerox had it all 
in the late 70s and they missed the boat completely. And I think, you know, there's a whole other dialogue we could go into about having a research part of a company versus having the part of the company that does marketing, commercialization, et cetera, right? And how those two parts don't always talk to each other and um, make the right connections. But yeah, HP is forgivable. Xerox totally well, There's an itty-bitty line. It's even in a different context, but Jobs talking about IBM, which started finally getting some traction with this PC, Jobs said something to the effect, they just didn't know how to sell the people. Apple did. Yeah. And so uh, Xerox and their infinite wisdom, they maybe just weren't thinking about, they didn't think like a marketer. They didn't think like Regis. So you kind of took my last question before we hit uh, some of the wrap up questions, by the way, I'm enjoying that. I, I, I'm not trying to embarrass you too much, but I love listening to you. I, I again, this is why I love your show, but uh, just listening, this is outstanding. So you kind of hit on this, but I want you to add to it. Why did Apple, so really their main product was the Apple II. Then it starts to slide. 83, they hit the top. 84, I got that wrong. 84 was their best year. Then 85, they still hit a million in units, but it still went downward. And then every year after that, kept going downward. They just couldn't repeat that success. You've already mentioned the Lisa. You already mentioned the first iteration of the Macintosh. Any opinions there, which is really kind of beyond the book. I mean, the author talks about the demise or going downward, but doesn't really offer, well, here's the why. Do you have some opinions, David, about that? Yeah, there's a very clear and obvious explanation. It's a good question, but the answer is very clear. It was the IBM PC and the PC clones. Let's give some historical context here to the listeners. So the, the personal computer revolution really starts in 75 with um, the Altair. And there's three important personal computers that come out in 77, the Apple II, the Commodore PET, and the TRS-80. And those are the main personal computers from 77 to 81. There are other ones too, but those are the ones that are dominant. In 81, the IBM PC comes out. You know, there's this old phrase, of course, nobody ever gets fired for buying IBM. Um, and IBM was the dominant player in the computer industry as a whole. So people were kind of waiting, what are they going to do in the PC space? They finally come out with the PC after some earlier attempts that weren't inexpensive enough. And the PC is based on very standardized hardware. And they even buy an operating system off the shelf. And there's a whole story behind this, but they basically buy DOS from Microsoft. And by using standard components, uh, they were able to reduce the development time of the computer, and they were also able to bring down costs. But um, what that also enabled is clone manufacturers to be able to also buy those same parts off the shelf and be able to license the same operating system from Microsoft. And so the whole industry then starts to gather around a standard, which is the IBM PC compatible standard. And so you have this big player moving the standard forward, and you have intense competition from all the clone manufacturers bringing down costs and increasing quality as competition always does, right? And you have Apple then on the other side, who's the other kind of remaining player. Commodore is kind of still in the mix, but Apple's the other big player in the PC industry in the United States, at least, right? And they're working with a proprietary standard. Apple has always been about being proprietary, even to this day, right? Um, and so at that time, 
there wasn't enough of a benefit of the proprietary Apple II standard. In fact, in some ways, the Apple II was far inferior to the IBM PC by 1984 um, and how the PC had started to evolve. The Macintosh was a next level leap, but it didn't have the software compatibility with the IBM PC, which is now becoming a standard. And software compatibility is super important in the computer industry because it creates network effects. By having, um, you know, kind of a, a snowball that keeps rolling, uh, you just get bigger and bigger by by having a standard. Um, and it's important because it's a two-sided industry, right? Um, you have the original company that you buy your computer and your operating system from, and then you also have the third-party software developers that you're buying the parts that plug in from, right? And they enjoy having a standard. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. You need to have enough users that developers want to develop for your platform, but developers don't want to develop for your platform. Uh, excuse me, users don't want to go on your platform until you have enough developers because they want to have apps, they want to have software to buy for the platform. And so IBM was able to give that big thrust that created enough of a start for that snowball, that critical mass. And then the clone manufacturers made it a dominant network effect. And Apple, with its proprietary standard, just couldn't compete with that. Um, in terms of, you know, they, they still were able to survive, obviously. And But it turns out in the modern market with the iPhone, having one company ba- make both the software and the hardware, I think, is more of an advantage than it was in the uh, the older PC industry. And so that being proprietary has been to their advantage in the last 20 years, whereas it was to their disadvantage in the mid-80s. So if you don't mind, it may sound like I'm plagiarizing uh, Business Books & Co., but I want to use a couple of your final questions. Do I have permission, sir? <laughs> of course, Mark. And thanks for all the kind words I, again, you said, well, by the I way. Can't I really help appreciate it. it. I, I, I love the show and I want the world to know about it. Do you recommend the book? I absolutely recommend this book. Um, Unlike some Apple books that might only be for fanatics, I think this book is great for anybody who loves a good entrepreneur story. Um, And I think if you are somebody who's really into Apple, this is a foundational book to read. It's actually a book that a lot of the later books quote or are using as a source. So a lot of the stories are being told here for the first time And I always like to learn about stories from first principles. So I think whether you're just somebody who loves a story of a couple of great entrepreneurs or somebody who's really into Apple, this is a must-read book. And I'm telling you, it's been interesting because of you, this book. I've been listening on YouTube to some uh, Waz interviews, some of them older, and a lot of things he'll mention is, oh, that's in the book. That's in the book. Uh, One other question that you three it will usually be in the context of do you recommend, but you and the uh, your other two uh, co-hosts who will do this show with you, they'll also talk about, or you'll bring up, is this applicable uh, to your work? So there is a lot of history here. And I, pr- yeah. I think both of us have brought up some very interesting uh, pieces, some nuggets for management, really anyone in any walks, whether you're in uh, marketing, uh, sales, uh, tech, but is this a pragmatic book for readers? Not in the same way that some business books are. This is this is a great inspirational book, I think, more Good so point. than anything else. So if you want to be inspired, absolutely. And there are, like you mentioned, there's some good management anecdotes throughout. I think there's some interesting um, kind of 
side stories here. Like we talked about that first month with the um, order from the bite shop, just about values, about what kind of values you need to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, but is it something that's going to like drill down into the details of how to run a meeting or, you know, what, what was successful strategy wise for them versus another thing you have to kind of develop those insights on your own as you're reading it, but it's, it's more of a inspirational book than anything else. I think Mark, what about you? Like, who would you recommend this book to? Which of your clients See, I would was you recommend worried. this book to? See, because I listen to your shows, like he's going to ask that question. It's like, and, and here I am, I'm still thinking, well, You've heard me maybe say this before. There are three reasons we read books. A, to be entertained. Uh, B, to be inspired. I think you just hit two of those. And three, to be educated. So if you, I love narrative nonfiction. You heard me mention Ghost in the Wires. In fact, I think that was the very first book I listened to on Audible is Ghost in the Wires. Uh, What I do... A lot of the books I read, I love biographies, I love memoirs. So for the per- for the people I know that like those kinds of books, they're going to. Lo- I think they're going to love this this book. Uh, the someone who, the people who have read Hamilton, and I have people in my space that love that. Well, if you love Hamilton, you're going to like this little four hundred page uh, book, four hundred and twenty, I guess. So I would say for the person who likes business history, uh, works in business. Uh, they're going to enjoy this. And by the way, whether you're a marketer, uh, whether you are in sales, you're going to read, you have that lens on of whatever field you're in. And that's why you're going to pick up on certain things like you and I did, just like the whole concept of the leadership teams, you know, Mike, the two mics, um, you know, the innov- the discussion about innovation. So my thought is if you like history already, if you like narrative nonfiction, uh, th- this is a great fit. If if you like what I call pop management books, you may quit reading it after the first chapter. And you know what? That's fine. But I, I think I think the Bill Gates of the world would probably love this type uh, of a book. But that that's my thoughts. I, I hope I'm not uh, rambling. No, that makes total sense. I yeah. have one final question about Apple, and then I have one last question for you. And this may be an unfair question. Uh, by the way, I think you saw my notes on this. You know a lot about Apple. You've read, in fact, you have a blog post about the different books in this. Uh, and again, you this is your favorite. Can you think of, David, anything that hasn't been written that you can think of that you wish would be mentioned in a book about Apple? Is uh, That may be a hard question, Mainly because during the time of the Titanic, everything that has invented uh, could be invented has been invented. What a stupid! And by the way, that's a myth. That was the, that comment. But can you think of anything that hasn't been written about Apple that you wish would be? Yeah, what we're missing from Apple is the insider narratives. Um, we have a couple of those. So Jean Louis Gassi, who was an important executive at Apple in the late '80s, wrote a book. Um, and, and Wozniak himself wrote an autobiography, but Marcola is still alive. Mike Scott is actually still alive, right? Why not tell the story from primary sources? Um, that's who I'd actually like to hear from, um, later in his life. I'd love to hear a memoir from Tim Cook. Uh, so I, I think 
and Apple has a famous culture of secrecy. So I assume that they're NDAs and they're not allowed to talk about most things. But I think somebody like Marcola has been out of it long enough that he probably could. And I would love to read the Marcola that is book. That's a great answer. Um, Good one. I interrupted you, but no, I, I. No, that's. Well, you, I know you've listened to at least one episode of CFO Bookshelf. So you, you kind of know our MO uh, at the very end. And I'm dying to find this out. Yes, I do know you read business books, but what are, can I, can I be nosy, uh, David? What are some of your favorite books? Yeah, I believe it or not. Um, I, I read a lot of, for the show, I read a lot of business books. I've always just really found them entertaining, but some of my favorite books are actually outside of the, um, the business Good. sphere. So my, one of my favorite books from history is the biography of John Adams by David McAuliffe, which I thought was just masterful. Um, one of my favorite uh, novels is the house with, um, the, uh, the house with the seven gables by Nathaniel really? Hawthorne. I've read all of Hawthorne's novels. Um, and I love all of Hawthorne's novels, but that was probably my favorite of, of them. Um, so I also like the Blythedale romance by Hawthorne a lot. There's this kind of this Hawthorne's like this dark romanticism that uh, he has these moral stories in them, you know, and there's a little bit of kind of Americana and early New England history combined in them. And those are all themes that kind of appeal to me. So very, very, very fascinating. Well, I cannot thank you enough. And we get to do one last thing. You also do this on your show. We're going to do it here. Plug the heck out of anything. You can talk about your podcast. You can talk about school uh, where you teach. You can talk about your coho. I don't care what you, we're not going to cut it out. So plug away. You've got the mic, sir. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. And thanks again for having me on. It was really an honor and a pleasure. Uh, a couple of things I will plug. So I'll plug my business books and company podcast with my two co-hosts, Kevin and David. We love doing it. I'm more of the moderator. They're the business guys. And I'm more of just the one kind of leading the discussion. Uh, another thing I'll plug is my podcast about software called Copec Explains do Software. With, you do that with your I, wife, right? I do that with my wife. She, she didn't you do one on spreadsheets? We did do one like on spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a deep episode that you picked that one because that's one of our not popular episodes. Uh, not a lot of people that interested in spreadsheets or the history of them, I guess. But um, we we love doing it. We do. We come up with a new episode every two weeks, and I explain software concepts from the layperson's perspective even though we go into enough technical depth that you're going to know what you're talking about after listening to one of the episodes on some subject, we don't go into like, you know, how does this, um, what are all the definitions of all these technical terms? We don't do that. We're just, just high level enough that you can talk about a subject after listening to a 10 or 20 minute episode. And um, I'll also plug, you, you told me yes, I should go can. as long as I want. So, okay. Um, I'll, pl I'll also plug, um, my books, if you're a computer programmer, uh, my the book I'm most well-known for is Classic Computer Science Problems in Python. And it basically teaches you some problem-solving techniques from computer science through a very tutorial-like format. So even if you're somebody who just is a programmer on the side, you're not, it's not your, your full-time job, this will give you enough computer science problem-solving techniques to be dangerous. And the book's been translated into seven uh, human languages, available everywhere. Uh, so 
that's the one I'll, I'll just call out. So I think I went long enough, but those are some things I'll plug. Thank you so much, Mark, for that opportunity. David, you are awesome. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. And uh, thank you again for having me. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. The faculty at Harvard Business School pioneered the case study method more than 100 years ago. Now, case studies, they focus on real-life examples from the business world to highlight and analyze business principles. And one recent HBR article mentioned the benefits of these case studies on college students that include preparation, discernment, bias recognition, judgment, collaboration, curiosity, and finally, self-confidence. Well, don't have time to attend Harvard Business School to sit through case studies? We'll do this instead. Start a book club and do what David and I just did, break down a book. And we could have done this for a few more hours. But when you go over a book, especially with a small group, not just with one other person, I just think the benefits are measurable. And that's why I recommend the podcast Business Books and Co., which I consider a rich alternative to the case study method. So, David Kopech, thank you very much. And I'm sorry, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Mm-hmm.